There's so many different facets to the business that you need to understand. Passion is just one of them. So yeah, it's it's been great to to talk to you. And it's also, like I said, I went back and listened to a lot of these podcasts you have. And it's been so good to uh, hear people starting out and people that have been doing it for a long time and stuff I hadn't, I, I don't know, and I'm learning and, and other stuff. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the business and lifestyle of the hospitality industry. Now, here's your host, Woolco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. I'm your host, Stephen Toberoff. And today, my guest is the owner of East Harlem Bottling Company in uh, East Harlem at 1711 Lexington Avenue, Leo Lauer. And we were having such a great time before we began this interview, so I'm really excited to get into it. Leo, thanks for taking the time to talk to me today. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. So, Leo, you have a, a really beautiful restaurant up there, and I would love to get into some details about that. But before we get into it, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the restaurant business and came to own uh, East Harlem Bottling Co.? Yeah, sure. So I came to New York in 96, 95, 96, somewhere around there. I'd also had jobs in the restaurant business. I think I started, I was a busboy, and then I was a runner, and then I ended up in the as a dishwasher. And in high school and stuff. And then when I went away for college and I was a bar back and eventually I bartended and I came to New York after college with a theater degree and went into theater acting and, and whatnot. But I always got back waiting tables or bartending. So it wasn't something I, I had thought I would be doing, but I worked in some great places and met some great people. And I started a theater company and as the years pass and whatnot, trying to think how the bottling company actually got to where well, it got to. Well, before we get into that, I just want to yeah. jump in because there's so many parts of your story yeah. that I can already relate to. Because first off, I moved back to New York in 93 and I was an English major, but I wrote a few plays. Uh, one was put on at the University of Chicago. So do you remember a theater company called the Soho Repertory Theater? Oh, of course. Yeah. 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 Very much so. We used to, I don't know if I ever worked in this space, but I've been to the space numerous times. I think we tried to rent it out once as a theater company, but yeah, go on. Yeah. Soho Rep, great place. A good buddy of mine from college, Daniel Auken, was the artistic director there, and I was on the board for a little bit, and Daniel's gone on to to have a great career in directing, so I can sort of relate. I come from a similar type of a, a situation before getting into this line of business as well. Well, it's funny, Stephen, because I saw that you went to the University of Chicago, and I went to the University of Wisconsin, and we are basically the same age, so I thought maybe there was some kind of connection I wasn't sure, you know, I've been listening to some of these podcasts that you were doing and really much enjoying them. And I was like, oh, that'll be interesting to see if some of this uh, crosses past. But yeah. Definitely. There's that. And then in addition to living in Chicago, I stayed there a year after I graduated. I had a good buddy of mine that lived in Minnesota. So I spent a lot of time in the Midwest and yeah. even even around Wisconsin. It's great. Never yeah, made it to Madison. Yeah. No. yeah. I lived in Chicago right after school for a little bit. And then had made the decision that I was going to move to New York because, uh, to be honest, Chicago was a lot like where I came from. It was a lot like uh, the rest yeah. of the Midwest. And so I wanted something a little different. But so anyways, I, yeah, so I ended up in New York and I ended up, we had a theater company and I was acting and then I was also producing and I was the uh, executive director of a theater company. I was always waiting tables or, or running someone else's place and I was always paying attention. 
I worked at a bar back in 98 in Park Slope before Park Slope was kind of Park Slope. And the guy I met in acting class had opened it up with a buddy. And it was basically just a beer and a shot bar. And they did well and they opened up a few other ones. So anyways, that was always in the back of my mind that this is something I could do. And and I remember a guy that I bartended with offered me, did I want to do this with him? And, and I did. And he went out and, and, and actually opened up a bar or two. And so this was always around, I guess, is what I was going to say. The East Harlem neighborhood is one that I have a connection with as well, because my dad, many years ago in the 70s, owned a few ice cream stores around New York City. And one of them was in East Harlem. And it's always been such a great neighborhood. And, and now... Right near you is another one of our customers, and the guys that found it have been friends of mine for a long time, the East Harlem School. Yeah, sure. So I'm curious, because your concept, well, I'll, I'll let you describe the concept, but what yeah. led you to open up in that location, and what led you to open up the concept, if you could talk about it a little bit? How did you find your way selecting that location to open up your restaurant? So we live in the neighborhood. So we live on uh, 104, and the restaurant's on 107 in Lex. So we live about three blocks away. And which had nothing to do with me wanting to open a restaurant. It's just I had moved up here in 2005. We had bought a, a place and, and moved up here and enjoyed the neighborhood. And, and how did we get to opening the restaurant? To be honest, I was getting I was getting burned out running a not for profit, and I got to the point where I was looking to do some other things. And it sounds kind of corny, but I was thinking, what the hell can I do? To be honest, like what, you know, whatever. And then that book by Malcolm Gladwell was out a while back, 10 years ago or something. And it was this whole thing of what have you done 10,000 hours of? And so it, it kind of popped in my head. It's like, you know, the one thing I've been doing constantly for the last 20 years or whatever, 25 years is either bartending, waiting tables or running someone's restaurant. And I'd always kind of like enjoyed it. I should say I more than enjoyed it, but anyways, so that's where it came from. So then it, then it was like, where do I do this? And I had always looked around the neighborhood. I wasn't sure if there was a time to do it. Long story short of it is our first lease didn't work out. We had a lease. We had everything basically waiting to get signed on another spot in the neighborhood, and it fell through. And I learned a lot from that. And then about three months later, I found this spot, and it turns out this spot turned out to be better. And we opened up in 2015. That's really cool. You know, so many people that we do business with, and even a number of the guests that I've had on earlier, have begun their journey in, in owning and, and uh, opening up a restaurant in a similar way, whether it was something where they had a passion for it and they took the plunge, or it was just some a group of serendipitous events that led to it. Now, what made you select the type of concept and cuisine? Was that something that yeah. you had an affinity for, or how did that come to pass? I was kind of lucky in my career, if you will, in the hospitality and food industry. Is I worked at like five places, four places, and I worked at them each for a good amount of time. And I learned so much from each place. And so I always had it in my back of mind that I would open a restaurant. And not just a bar, but a restaurant. I wanted to get into the food. I thought it was more challenging. I thought it was more interesting. You know, and as I got older, I was moving further and further away from kind of bark culture and into more food culture as, you know, as I aged and stuff. And so the concept came out of, a lot of it came out of like, what did I think the neighborhood was missing, right? Which is a basic kind of business idea. You know, what needs to be filled. Also something I felt comfortable with, meaning that something that wasn't too out of my reach, 
right? But I also didn't want to do necessarily pub food. So we ended up, the idea was to do a local spot, which is always what I you know. You talked to the guy, Tavern on Jane, and we had talked a little bit about that. And there was all these great spots in the East Village when I was when I was living down there that were just local spots that you would go into. There's a place called Telephone that's not there anymore. Valsalka, mm-hmm, um, you, you know, you talk to them. Sure. And, you know, th- those places were just like places you could go there with your second kitchen. You knew people. You could drop off your keys. I used to drop my keys off at my local place, you know, when I went for a run. Yep. And I wanted a place where you could, you know, like the people upstairs could have their packages dropped off. And you knew everyone and then people walked by with their dogs. And so that was, that was the vibe we wanted. So how do we go about that is, you know, I kept in things that I understood. I understood craft beer. I understood burgers and wings and things like that. And then we wanted it to be elevated, you know, so I guess the term is gastropub is what people use, but we just think of it as elevated local. I don't even say comfort food because it's not always comfort food, but something that is scratch kitchen, something that's made, it's not processed. And then we just wanted it a place to feel like your living room, you know, and also, I mean, the thing I always say is it's, it's a place that I would want to hang out. I really, I, I really love that. I like the way that, you know, I was listening to you describe the, the whole thought process going into it. And I think it's just absolutely terrific because the foundation, or at least the first thing you mentioned was having a spot that was going to be integrated in the community. And then you stuck to, or at least began by focusing on those aspects that you know and building upon it. And I think that's such a smart way to go about it because it enables you to play to your strengths. And I think it also creates a very solid business foundation. Yeah, it did. And we felt that that was the way. On the marketing side, too, we felt like instead of, we looked at it like, you know, we're the little stone that's dropped into the lake, right? And then the ripples start there and go, they go half blocked and they go two blocks and they go three blocks. And that's kind of how we marketed it. And that's kind of how we, I want the person across the street to feel proud that they live across from us or feel not proud necessarily, but that we're not, we're part of their neighborhood, right? So they're, they're a part of our neighborhood. We're a part of their neighborhood and then two blocks away, right? Or four blocks away and then six blocks. So we started very small and tried to make sure that our neighbors were taken care of and and that we had uh, an interest in them and they had an interest in us. Not only food-wise, but everything else, what's going on. And so the great thing that's been is we have families come in and they just have a baby. And now five years later, the, the kids are high-fiving us and they know our that's names awesome. and, and stuff like that. And so, you know, because that's what I liked about New York when I moved here. That's what I wanted. You know, I wanted a community. Uh, I grew up in St. Paul, but I grew up in suburbs kind of too. So, you know, it was always nice to to live someplace where you actually were connected to the people next to you. And it's only got stronger obviously. Absolutely. There's so much I want to ask you. I'm, I'm trying to debate if I, I'm going to jump back with a quick question, then I'll get to something more present. One of the things that I was listening to you say is that as you were working in the restaurants prior to opening this, you, you knew that it was something that you would want to do. And so you were learning. What would you say were the top two or so lessons that you sort of picked up on as you were working that sort of stuck in your head and said, when I open my spot, this is something I'm going to learn from and and act accordingly. One of the biggest things I learned, and I tell this, like I have coworkers, guys, staff that work for me, uh, women that work for for us or work with us, I should say. And some of them want to open stuff. And they ask me all the time. I said, you know, you, the biggest thing was, is I saw people opening up restaurants pouring all this money time and energy into them and only and only signing seven-year leases and the year seven you become a partner you're already a partner with the landlord but you become a different partner with the landlord when you have a thriving business 
So that was one of the big things I, that I picked up very quickly. And I also, I read a book. I think this is funny. I was thinking about this on the walk over here to talk to you. I remember reading a book by Sam Walton, the guy from Walmart, talking about how he only signed 99-year leases because he didn't want eventually to be in partnership. He wanted the partnership to be what the partnership was with the landlord and not have it change. And I remember thinking about that and kind of anyway. So that was one of the first things was, is and, and that goes into, this is another thing I tell, sometimes people ask me to do this. And I said, you know, you just got to get the fundamentals right. You got to get the building right, the space right. You got to do your due diligence. You got to make sure that you have gas, there's a CO, all this kind of stuff that you have a lease that's going to be not only functional in the first three years, you got to think of that you're going to be a success. Because, you know, in New York, you know, we see all these places like, oh, what happened in that place? It was so great. It was packed all the time. Well, they only had a 10-year lease. Exactly. That's one of the biggest things before the pandemic. By far the biggest thing is so many phenomenal restaurants that were profitable and doing great and great followings. The lease got escalated on them two, three, four X and just unsustainable. So I think your point is extremely important. Yeah, you hear it all the time. I mean, we were talking about Florent, I think, on one of your yes, podcasts. Yeah. These institutions. Also, between me and you and whoever's listening, is you can't count on whoever is developing the city to care about you. Meaning that you have to make sure, and this is a this is a just a thing that I picked up also from the first couple places, you know, because the first place I worked at was, you know, two guys didn't know anything about it, understood a little bit about what was happening and they had a great spot. 10 years later, they're fighting to get an extension because the neighborhood had changed on them and blue moved in next door and they found themselves with this business they had built and whatever. And I don't know if they ever made the same mistake again, but that was something I learned early on. Those are two great ones. And that's absolutely crucial because when you have a successful business and let's focus on restaurant, bar, hospitality, the single biggest thing you need to get right is the relationship with the landlord. And I yeah. I had some thoughts even before the pandemic, because what happened, Leo, was in 08, the whole market crashed financially. Yeah. And the restaurateurs and the entrepreneurs that were doing well and that, you know, were in a good position, they all of a sudden got lease extensions. They opened up new locations. And it was the first time in a while where the relationship between landlord and tenant moved in the direction of the tenant. Those leases started to come to expiration in 2018 through 20, that's when the jackup of the rent was coming and you saw a lot of that happening. I think now we're at a moment in time and I, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but let's let's go into this. I'd like to know your thoughts. It, I, I know from the buzz that I'm hearing from a lot of people that are in the space that there's a lot of people looking for space right now and there's a lot of people that are very bullish in the hospitality and restaurant space if you look out into Q2, Q3 of 2021. What are your thoughts and what suggestions would you give to somebody in the space right now if they wanted to have any type of conversation with their landlord, whether it had to do with addressing rent issues now, extension, or if they're even looking to open a spot? What are your thoughts about how to navigate that dynamic in the current environment? That's a great question. This is also very tricky because it's always individual, right? I mean, it's always comes down to like, there's a lot of things that go into that. How much capital you have, how much, how long you can wait. Are you willing to actually move where the landlord's position is, how the banks. So there's a lot of, lot of things in it. I think there's opportunity. I mean, you know, we're opening up a new space. We were supposed to have it open last year around March, right when the pandemic hit. 
And, you know, we obviously slowed everything down, which is to say that I think it's a great time to get involved with a lease with a landlord if you're smart. Now, I'm not sure, and, and you know, you might know, have different ideas or be, you know, have some more information on this. The real estate market here is always the trickiest thing. And it's, I think it's, you were asking me before, like, it's the number one thing you have to understand when running any business in this city, I think, if you're going to have a brick and mortar. Because it is what, it's what dictates New York. It dictates how neighborhoods change or don't change, how subways move and that kind of stuff. And all this other stuff, how capital works and all that. I think there's opportunity. You have to ask yourself one question, which is, do you think that New York City is going to come back, right? If it's gone away, I don't know if that's if that's even a thing. When is that going to happen? And how do you position yourself to be in a place rent-wise that makes sense for you? Um, the other thing, the one thing I thought about when you asked the question was, is don't be afraid to ask for everything. If you don't ask, they can't say no. It's a great so point. I was saying, you know, if, if you're new to this and coming into it, the other thing that guy, the guys do, women do that I know is you just want a place so bad that you overlook the space. You go, you know what? That's not great, but we'll work around it. This isn't good, but we'll work around it. The property taxes are going to come up in two years, but that's okay. Like all these things that, and then put this kind of handcuff on yourself. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I agree with everything you're saying. I mean, my own thoughts are the following. I think it's definitely a time where you have to be really tactical and you have to ask yourself the questions that you just listed. And another question that I would ask that I've been giving a lot of thoughts to myself is how will the city change coming out of this? And yeah. There's a lot of thought that goes into it. My own sense of things, having been born and raised in New York and and seeing it go through cycles, is that if you look at the 90s in New York, let's say late 90s up until now, or even pick pick whatever time you want. When Mm -hmm. New York began this massive metamorphosis from where it was in the 70s and 80s, which was a gritty, dangerous place, but a very vibrant and a very authentic and a very unique place. It morphed into a place that was extremely uh, expensive. And when that occurred, a lot of the, I don't want to say authenticity, but a lot of the independent aspects of New York, the, the uniqueness of it got sucked out of it. And on every corner you had either a bank or a CVS or a Dwayne Reed. I mean, the Second Avenue Deli is right. a perfect example. Perfect How example. Is Second Avenue Deli right there, and there's a chase, right? Precisely. Yeah. So, you know, what, what I think is quite possible is over the next period of time, New York might become a little bit of a grittier city, but a younger city, and a city that is more reflective of the dynamic, let's say, from the, the 80s, not with nearly as bad in terms of of crime and what have you. And so if I owned a restaurant and I was looking for spaces, I would follow your advice to a T. I'd ask for everything. I would make sure that everything was exactly how I wanted it. One idea that I'm going to put out there that people may want to think about is if you can get the right rent, it might actually make sense and there might actually be opportunities in the next year or two to be a pioneer in certain neighborhoods for concepts that weren't conducive to them before. Here's just a quick thought. This may not work. It may work, but it's just indicative of what I think may happen. Midtown and the the area of New York City that was really heavily centered around uh, offices and office workers in the lunch business, that might be a spot to start looking. And if you can create a destination spot, something really hip and cool for dinner, nightlife, brunch, just one concept of many, but I agree with you. And I think the other thing, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on it, Leo, is 
Landlords are going to be very much needing tenants in the restaurant space because retail was facing challenges before the pandemic that were entrenched and they're not going to abate. (laughs) What are your thoughts about creating, if the circumstance is right, or would you even consider some form of partnership with a landlord at the beginning? Where in exchange for below market rent, you you engage in some type of sharing. What are your thoughts about that arrangement? So I love it. So I've heard you talk about this and I believe that, and I could be wrong on this, there's some of the big guys, the Danny Myers, Steve Hansen, those guys have had those relationships with their landlords. I'm not sure if that's true, but that's what I've, so I think those relationships happen. As a restaurant guy, I'm, I'm great with it, meaning that I think it's on my end, it, it makes sense. So say the base, the base rent is the base rent, and then you, you know, you get 3% or whatever over profit. As long as you're working with a landlord, you have to get everything squared away with who's doing the auditing and all this kind of stuff. But from the landlord side, though, you know, and, and this is some of the things you got, you sometimes have to think about is like, where is the benefit for them? And I heard someone else talk about banks. I think that's an issue. You know, banks like to know exactly what the the role is and all that. I, I like it. I, you know, it's like anything else. I mean, everything we do, and this is something you had asked about before about the the two things. One of the other things is numbers. You have to love numbers and you have to understand all the numbers. So this is just another number. Same thing as like food cost or labor or whatever. So if you know you're paying X amount of dollars and then 3% over, what is it, gross or net profit, as long as you know what that is and you've worked all the numbers, you can do it. I think it's good for the restaurant. I don't know. You, you have to have a partner in that. So I completely agree with you. And, and I, I want to jump into a, a subject you touched on before. But before I do, I also want to underscore what you said, Leo, which is particularly for the listeners that are aggressively looking now to open and start your first business in this space or really any business, you must love your numbers and you must know them. And I think that you absolutely need to, from the beginning, have a really great accountant. And it's my belief that you have to at least once a month sit down and scrutinize every aspect of your business's financial picture. Because if you don't, you leave yourself vulnerable to losing a lot of money or even worse consequences. And if you do, you'll be surprised at how much more efficiently you can run your business. But if you don't pay attention to your numbers, that, that's just a horrible recipe right there. Yeah, 100%. And just to, just to piggyback on what you said about, I, I think it is a great time and a great opportunity to say you were going to open a restaurant in the next couple of years and you had the capital, this would be a great time to go and negotiate leases. And you could go to you could go to Midtown if that's what you wanted, or you could go to another area that maybe is going to take a little bit time to recover from the pandemic, as long as you have enough capital. And again, this goes back to the numbers. So as long as you are able to figure out what you're going to need to get through until you believe it, business is always taking, you know, is, is risk reward, right? So the, the idea would be is if you think that Midtown in the in your example is going to, or you could get a destination place and figure out how to get people to come to Midtown, then you have an opportunity. But you have to say, maybe I'm going to have to wait six months or I'm going to have to wait a year. Do I have the kind of finances to do that? And also, am I going to be able to keep a staff around? Exactly. And that's going to go into your finances also, because if you don't have people coming in the doors, part of the business for people is to socialize, to be active, to be busy. And so anyways, these are things to consider. Absolutely. And, and I mean, Midtown was one example you could even, it was just to be illustrative, like I was thinking of another uh, account of ours and a guest on an earlier podcast, yeah. Black Swan, which is a gastro pub in Bed-Stuy. He had lived in the area and he identified that this was a place that he wanted to open up a concept. And 
the neighborhood evolved dramatically around him. But it's like you said, if you're going to do something in an area or in a location that is that you see a vision for that uh, area that's different from what it's currently doing, you absolutely have to project and be prepared to navigate through a chunk of time. Something you had mentioned as the foundation of when you opened East Harlem Bottling Co. was making it a spot that was integral to the neighborhood and the community. And I'd love to know how that's playing out in the midst of what we're going through right now. First and foremost, how has the neighborhood reacted and how has what you've done in terms of your involvement with the community changed, evolved, strengthened throughout this process? I would love to know about that. Yeah, this is a great question. And I have a lot of thoughts on it. We live in the neighborhood and have lived in the neighborhood for, I guess, about 10 years before we opened the restaurant. And so we kind of understood the neighborhood, but we weren't really connected to the neighborhood. There wasn't a focal point in the neighborhood for people to kind of connect. There were some restaurants, there was a bar here and there, a couple of laundromats, that kind of stuff, but n- not always a place to, to connect with people. So we weren't really sure exactly how it would connect people, right? But the hope always was that it would. And it really much did. And so right off the bat, we got involved with the neighborhood in the sense that we started working with Union Settlement. We started working with Dream, uh, the, one of the charter schools on our block. We started working with some of the other, the museum, there's a museum here, the Little League team, we had talked to them about something, you know. And in fact, I probably too much too early because we weren't really, uh, <laughs> we weren't really settled yet. You had mentioned somewhere on, on, on one of these things, you know, like the first year is important. I was already, you know, in, in month four, like I'm calling people like, how can we get involved? Instead of like making sure that we were going to survive the first year. But fast forward and, you know, we've been around a little bit and, and people know us and we know people and stuff. The pandemic has been, it's been horrible. It's been horrible for everybody, business, personally, everything. The bright side of that is it has brought our community here in East Harlem together like nothing else has. Um, East Harlem is is a neighborhood that has different socioeconomic, different languages, different, very diverse. The one thing that brought us all together, even though we were together, was this pandemic, right? So we're doing meals for people in the neighborhood that we wouldn't necessarily always meet. The other restaurants in the neighborhood pulling together and doing that. We were doing Zoom calls early on with Uptown Grand Central and some other organizations, Union Settlement I mentioned. So people started to to get together and talk to each other. What can I do to help? How's this going? You know, and the restaurants started to do the same thing. And so there was a really community feel to to helping out your neighbor, which has always been here, which is always a New York thing that people don't, if you don't live here, you don't really understand that, you know, everyone has neighbor out but this actually was one of those things that kind of brought everyone even even more so i think i said once in in one of our instagram posts is like we're thankful for the pandemic in this way that it actually how strong everybody was and how everyone went out of their way we you know we were going to the hospitals with meals mount sinai metropolitan people were donating to buy meals for the workers and stuff what i was going to add to what you're saying is i think that that is Something that you, I was going to say smart, but smart's not the right word. You, the, the way that you built the foundation of your business lent itself to you being an integral part of the community when the community needed to pull together. And I think that that's what's really terrific. And I think one of the common themes that you hear, because the restaurant business has been in the news front and center since the pandemic began, yeah. and probably more than any other industry. And my take from that, 
among many, but I think the most important take is how integral restaurants are as part of a community and part of people's lives. Otherwise, they wouldn't get the conversation that they're getting in the media. So I think, first and foremost, the fact that you had laid that foundation was great. The second thing you said, which I just would want to comment on very briefly, is I've just been absolutely blown away by the courage, the resiliency, the the toughness, the heroism of this industry in the face of really getting no support and actually a lot of headwinds from entities and institutions that shouldn't be giving this industry headwinds. You know, this industry employs a lot of different people from a lot of different socioeconomic backgrounds. And I just don't think it's been given the level of support and appreciation that that I would have thought it would have. But from my own vantage point, I, I've been so inspired and so honored to be a part of this industry by just watching people fight every day, you know? Yeah, I, I agree with you, Stephen. I think when we look back at this, we're going to be, I don't know what the word is. I, I don't want to say ashamed, but I mean, it's there are so many people that work in the restaurant business or the hospitality industry or the food industry, whatever you want to call it. And I'm not just talking about restaurant people. I'm talking about, you know, vendors, purveyors, it goes to the fishermen. I mean, it just keeps moving down the line. And But it's also very complicated. And we try to stay open to to the conversation. As we're speaking now, looming that we're going to get shut down on Monday. That is seems like what's going to happen, according to the governor uh, yesterday. And what New Yorkers can't do is fight against each other, right? Which is this other thing that there's been a lot of talk about the restaurant industry. And I, I don't want to get too political about it, but I think that it will be it will be interesting to look back and see because the people that are calling for certain things and this and that I don't know I'm I'm getting I don't want to get too political in it because you know it's, it's a little yeah that's bit. okay I, I I get where you're coming from and I think I think it really is an apolitical thing in many ways well it should be apolitical the, right and that's the, that's right. the problem it somehow be. we've got into this thing where it's like it's you can't have this but they can have that and you're like. I will try to light back on us a little bit on the industry also is I see places that aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing. I find it uh, amazing when people aren't following kind of the regulations and the rules and stuff. At the end of the day, uh, we want to keep ourselves, uh, the people we work with, and the people that come in to our restaurants safe. I mean, that should be the goal. Absolutely. But you Absolutely. Know, if there was a financial kind of way of making sure that could happen for everyone, you wouldn't have this this fear, I guess, is what I'm what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. Now, one of the things that I did notice on your Instagram, and and this is, I'm curious to know this, because you do have an outdoor setup. Now, obviously, the the outdoor thing was really phenomenal, and it's unfortunate. What I'm hopeful for, God willing, and I think there's a high probability of this happening, is in 2020. We missed out, when I say we, I mean the restaurant, the hospitality community missed out on the months of March, April, May, and June substantially, which I think there's a reasonably high probability that the whole outdoor seating thing can be something really meaningful during those months in 2021 if if the vaccine is comes and all that stuff happens from a timing perspective. But my question to you is, assuming that they do shut down the indoor thing on uh, Monday, what are your thoughts on an outdoor? Does that, is that a feasible thing in the winter? Or, or what are your thoughts on how you're going to navigate that Let's just, if, if that does happen? Yeah, so we built a, a pergola on 107th Street per the city's regulations and whatnot. We have seating in there. And we also have, we have always had a sidewalk seating, sidewalk cafe since year two, I guess, or year one and a half or something. 
which was the first I someone told me it was the first sidewalk cafe in East Harlem, which so anyways, that's um, cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's was, really cool. Yeah. I remember, so that was interesting. So anyways, you know, we're going to try, I mean, this Sunday it was 30 degrees and we had people inside 25%. We have partitions, we have the ventilation, we do everything um, again to keep ourselves safe too. Because people are coming into our space. We want to make sure they're safe, but we also don't know necessarily, you know, we take the heat, we take the tracing. So we're doing everything we're supposed to do, keep ourselves safe. But we had, it was 30 degrees out and we had half the people sat outside with the heaters and in the cold. We bought a bunch of wool blankets about a month ago. You can get cheap wool blankets for like uh, industry, industrial things. You can just go on the, so we have wool blankets. So if people get cold, we, we put a blanket around them, put the heater on, we give them a hot toddy, they get burgers and fries or steak or salad or whatever they want. I feel comfortable that we'll be able to, to do some business, but it, it's not enough business to get through the three months. Cause I agree with you. I think in March and April we'll be even without the vaccine, if we can get outside again, be okay. It is what it is. You know, and if we have to do, we have to shut down because it makes sense for the hospital workers, I'm all for it. Half the people that come in our restaurant are doctors and nurses. They all work at Mount Sinai or Metropolitan or Monty. We saw the struggle in March and April and whatever we need to do to do our part, we're, we're all in for it. A lot of places are not going to make it through. I mean, there's not enough business for outside on the street in 20 degree yeah, weather. That's absolutely the case. And Let's hope that there will be some uh, solutions coming forth. Let me ask you this question to do something in line with this, because it's something that's a big part of any business, whether you're a restaurant or it doesn't, doesn't matter, which is budgeting and forecasting. And yeah. obviously no one has a crystal ball. Yeah. But one of the things that I sort of observed in 2020, which I alluded to before, but to just expand on briefly, was that two of the changes that were made, one with, with the, the expansion rather of outdoor seating and two, the ability for uh, restaurants to make cocktails to go, yeah. those were material. And one thing that I've seen and I believe is manifest is that people want to be able to, in other words, the restaurant industry is not an industry that is being disrupted because people no longer want to go out and they, they've decided that they want to stay home and just order up 24-7. People want to go out in the same way people I think, like, I know I want to take my kids to a baseball game. Yeah. There are people who love music. They want to go to concerts. So I mention this because these business concepts, in my mind, are fundamentally very sound and desirable. They're just facing massive headwinds because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, we're all in. Yes, and that, but it is something that you go through in your head. You have to sit down and go, is, are we okay? The funny thing is, is when one of the reasons I, we opened a restaurant, other than we love the restaurant business, this is something else that someone had said that I heard, is if you don't love it, you probably shouldn't be doing it because it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's, <laughs> you have to love, love it. I, we know it anyways. But the other reason was, is I always, I remember going through 9-11. I remember going through 2007, 2008. And you know what, you know what never changed? was the people coming into whatever bar or restaurant I was working at. Because especially in 9-11, people didn't want to be in their houses. They wanted to be social. They wanted to. And this is also what makes New York great. So I, in the long term, I believe that uh, the industry will bounce back. I think it will bounce back better. I think there'll be some, some good changes maybe that come out of it. 
I mean, this outside seating might be one of them, the silver lining that, you know, hopefully we'll be able to keep these things in the street as, as they've been, as they promised. So, yeah, I believe that that's the case. Again, I think that it's going to take some time. And this is where it comes back to the numbers. You, you know, if you're starting something out, you just need to be, make sure you can get through these lean times you know, from a financial perspective and everything else. Absolutely. I think that what you say makes a lot of sense. It goes back to the thing you talk about a lot, which is consistency, right? So a restaurant has to be consistent, right? I want to come in, I'm going to have a burger and fries. I want the same burger and fries I had three days ago. I want the same one I had a week ago. I want the same one I had three weeks ago. And it's the same thing with behavior, right? It's like, I want to I want to go out. I want to see people. We get into, you know, we, we have a social kind of part to us that needs to, and that's why this, the lockdown has been so hard, I think, on on everyone. And that's why it's got, it's got us all a little, little crazy because you haven't had the social. I, I think offices are going to come back. I think there's going to be some changes, but I talk to office people and stuff, and it's not the same working from home on a Zoom, the same synergy, the same kind of ideas, the idea that you can open up someone's office door and start talking ideas with them. I think that's going to take a lot longer, but. I, I agree with you. I think that, I mean, it's it's always difficult and I haven't given that that much bandwidth, but I, I would say like, like I said before, I think that there are some businesses that were facing fundamental disruption based upon just change of people's behavior. I don't think concerts and, and restaurants and travel and sporting events were ripe and are ripe for that type of disruption. I think people fundamentally really enjoy those events and those activities and want to get back to them. And so once the headwinds abate, I believe that they will. But from a business standpoint, it's imperative to, to, to weather the storm, so to speak. But what I've really enjoyed about this interview, Leo, and I really appreciate you taking the time and, and just something I would emphasize for people who are listening again that are getting started or thinking about getting started is all of your comments had a perfect balance between, on the one hand, focusing on the community, on people, on what this business is about at its core, but also you cannot lose sight of the fact, you know, you brought it up and it's something I really feel passionate about. You can't lose sight of making sure that you're on top of your numbers all the time and that you run it like a business. That's why I started this podcast. Yeah. There's tons of content out there about recipes and foodies, and I love that stuff. But this is a business and it can be a great business, but you have to treat it like that. And that starts with the numbers. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I, I think that's the hardest thing for people starting out is they come into it with, I love to cook, or I think this would be good, or that's good. And that's fine. And, and that's that's a great place to start. Passion is a great place to start. But there's there's so many different facets to the business that you need to understand. Passion is just one of them. So yeah, it's it's been great to to talk to you. And it's also, like I said, I went back and listened to a lot of these podcasts you have. And it's been so good to uh, hear people starting out and people that have been doing it for a long time and stuff I hadn't, I, I don't know, and I'm learning and, and other stuff that reinforces some of my thinking, which is always good and stuff that I didn't, didn't understand at all. I want to say one last thing as we end here. I think the biggest thing that I'm trying to keep learning, you had mentioned in one of your podcasts, is I have to be be open to all the ideas, right? Be open to to everything and willing to change if need be. But also you have to be very decision-making in, in your approach, meaning that we didn't get into talking about trends and in, in food and stuff like that and these other things because there's stuff that pop up and then go away and pop up and go away. And I think if you want to do this for a long time, you got to, you got to find like a core idea of what you believe in. And then how does that change kind of in the parameters of the times? 
I completely agree with you. And I think in your case, the way that you began with the foundation of, okay, I'm really passionate and knowledgeable about craft beers. I'm going to build on that. Well, craft beer is something that's not going away, and yet it's something that's constantly innovating. So it's about as good a concept as any for a starting place, and I completely agree with you. I'm a believer in, in as you said, Leo, like it's always important to keep learning and be open-minded and really not be married to anything to the point where it makes you sort of incapable of, of taking in new information and thinking about it. On the other hand, I think it always makes sense to really identify your strengths and, and build off of those. And, you know, what I would say just to, to end it, and, and again, I thank you, Leo, this has been a really enjoyable and informative interview. The East Harlem Bottling Company is in a phenomenal neighborhood. I, as I mentioned earlier on, you know, my dad had an ice cream store there many years ago. I grew up on 80th and East End, which is within walking distance. So for people who are from Manhattan or parts of New York City and have not been there, you know, w when the weather gets nice, it's a great neighborhood to go to. And your restaurant looks so beautiful and there's so much great stuff going on there that I think it really, in addition to being a phenomenal spot for the community, I think for someone that really is looking for a day trip, go to East Harlem and, and go to your restaurant and you'll find so much there to explore because it really is a terrific neighborhood. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And and thank you, Stephen, for taking the time. I really enjoyed talking to you and I'll have to find out where your father's uh, ice cream shop, what street it was on. No, I'm going to look through some old photographs yeah. and I'm going to get it for you, but it was great. And right on his block, you know, talk about community. Yeah. On his block, when I used to go visit him, there was one gentleman that owned an Army Navy store on the corner. There was another gentleman that had a jewelry store and, yep. and it, was a, it was a really great community. In fact, my father had a dentist up there, a guy by the name of Freddie Fisher. Oh. This is many years ago. He moved his offices. So anyway, this was a real pleasure, Leo. And I, I just really enjoyed this. And, and I thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. It was terrific. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, be safe. You too, man. Have a great day. I really enjoyed that interview with Leo, and I particularly enjoyed listening to how the lessons that he learned while working in the restaurant industry in various positions have served him so well now that he's an owner of a restaurant. I think there's a lot to, to be said about that. I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast. It means so much to me. Those of you that have subscribed, I appreciate it. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. And if you have time, I would love it if you would give a review. And certainly, please recommend this podcast to anyone that you think would enjoy the content or find it valuable. I really especially enjoy the emails that I'm receiving from you guys. Please continue to send them to me. You can email me at stephen at wolcofoods.com, stephen at wolcofoods.com, or you can DM me at wolcofoods. And I really look forward to hearing from you. And most importantly, guys, have an awesome, awesome day. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net.